Welcome, loyal listeners, to episode 14 of The Jankyard. We are a podcast for Ashes Reborn, an expandable card game from Plat Hat Games. Um, we like to say we're the best podcast. We may be the only one, but we're still the best one. And we will talk about all things Ashes, news, strategy, meta, um, open-minded deck building, closed-minded deck building. Bitter complaints. <laughs> That's right. Bitter complaints. There have been fewer of those lately. Well, I'm back, baby. Get ready. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. We do have Schmendrix back with us this week and the treatment as well our first episode back together in quite some time oh my god we're back again dun, dun. <laughs> all of us are here we're gonna stop the backstreet boys stuff and we're gonna we're gonna do ashes stuff gonna be a good time yeah so uh again just jump into some news current events in the ashes world real quick yeah let's hit it yeah the uh the webcam tournament wrapped up I think just either, I think just today. Matter of fact, won by Ninja Dance Mat. Congrats, Ninja. Yeah, played uh, Brian B in the finals. It was, I caught a quick glimpse of the match. It was um, Ninja's Odette that he's been playing quite a bit recently with Bears and um, Steadfast Guardian and Hydra's massive growth, that kind of cool stuff um, against a Fighting Spirit Cole deck that Brian played. And uh, I only saw the game for like two minutes, but there was a Root Armor Steadfast Guardian and a Wishing Wing and some Time Hoppers hanging around, and I had to go do something for work, and then I came back and the game was over. But uh, just a really cool that we did a a webcam tournament, I think. I wish I could have played in it, but I I think that if we do another one, I'm going to try and do that. Yeah, I'm going to – I'll have to actually buy like a webcam instead of – I can't use my laptop for it, but uh, it seems like fun. Especially now that I got all my cards out for Red Rains, make mm-hmm. use of them. Webcam's awesome. Highly recommend. Yeah, my only concern would be that it's I, I finally sorted everything into precon, which I was like against forever. And I did it because of Red Rains, but then I would have to like tear it apart to make a deck. But I have to do that for Gen Con anyway in a couple months, so I guess it might as well just do it. I have always had it sorted by precon, and if you're not one, I think it's going to be way easier going forward as now I'm actually like acquiring things through release. But um, looking back, not having bought those until I bought them all at once, basically, when I got into the game, it is it was a real learning curve to figure out which yeah. cards are in which precons. And some uh-huh. are pretty unexpected. Like um, Call Upon the Realms, I still don't... I think that's Mayoni. I'm still not that's totally Mayone. sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, she's corset, but like I, I just got the corset along with everything else. So I can't even... It's... Yeah. Right. I don't think I can name like half the cards from pre-cons. Like, I still have them sorted by type. Name a card. Name a card. Let's see how we do. Close combat. Oh, that's Cole. It's in Cole. Yeah. 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 Master set's probably easy. Plus the art. I think he's on it. No, it's Hammer Knight. Oh, it's Hammer cover. Knight. He's in cover. He's on cover, yeah. right? Because it used to be Spiked Armor when it was a 1.0. I want one of those those challenges to come back again. You know how Charlotte was running those trivias where it's like, oh yeah, what's the what's the flavor text on mm. you know such and such mm-hmm. a card, and you had to figure it out. It would also be cool to do it like what's um what artwork is on a specific card. So like, what artwork does uh, Crystal Archer appear on? Do you guys know? Uh, no. no. Crystal idea. Armor? Crystal Archer. 
I think it's on wall. Yeah, but is Crystal Armor, Crystal Archer on Crystal Armor? I think so. I think that's the one. Yeah, and then there's and there's like a Deb Duelist on Disengage. Yeah. I, I think that would be fun, but I, I just have it all sorted. And then when I do a campaign, I'll just pull that one pre-con. Mm-hmm. Because I'm not using, it's not like you use an entire other pre-con. So at the most, I'm just going to like look through the list on Ashes Live and then pull out the the three different cards from their section, shove them in. Right. But yeah, right now I have a whole box of just unsorted cards because I've been <laughs> powering through, I don't even know how many campaigns, but yeah, it's good times. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that was the webcam tournament. And then we also have uh, the Blitz tournament, which is the pod part is over. So now we're in the top cuts. There's six players. Myself, the treatment are both in the top cut. And then Carl and Wedge from my pod. And that's all I can remember currently. I think Asterix is in it. You'd think we'd have this information prepared. But yeah, pr- uh, probably I could pull it up. That, that's five of the six. I thought I had it from my from memory. It's fun. It's so much like... Oh, I love Blitz. It's yeah. the greatest. It's so much fun. Um, I'm, I'm actually, I'm really happy Wedge made the top cut because our, our game ended in a really like weird timing issue that I didn't even realize and Ash Techie does it wrong. <laughs> yeah. So, um, it, I ended up winning kind of on a technicality and I, I felt bad about it, but Wedge made it anyway. So I was happy to see that. I felt bad because I was the one. I like jumped in in the last minute of the game, and then you made a swing. Uh, and the the thing that Ashtekey still does wrong is void pulse, so it doesn't allow you to spin down the dice first. So you should have spun down the ceremonial die first, um, but instead it allowed her to trigger final cry. Yeah, which killed me and. Which and killed I, I you. Had, I had no dice left, or maybe like I had a ceremonial class dice left in my active pool, which I didn't need for anything. So like I, I had no reason to spin it up. I would have spun the dice down, but I, I forgot that that interaction worked that way, and I, I knew it worked for summon sleeping widows, and I was like cognizant of that the whole time, like thinking, okay, if I swing and they and wedge has w- widows dice up, I can void pulse and take it away, but for whatever reason, I didn't understand that that like also applied to final cry. So I didn't say like, "Hey," I, and I knew Final Cry was there, right? And I was like, "Okay." Yeah, it was. It was a little like I mean, she had premeditated the the die. I think. Yeah, the goat, and I was like, "Okay, I ha- like I'm dead unless I win right now. I'm gonna void pulse. If Final Cry's there, I guess I lose." Not thinking that like, yeah, I get to spin down the die first. Um. So I, but I swung anyway. Right, because that's yeah. all I that's all I could do, and then I I technically win because I would have spun that die down, but anyway, we both made the top cut, so that's cool. It was just it was one of those cases where I'm like, hey, yeah, uh, hi guys, nice game, but <laughs> my junkyard buddy <laughs> he actually wins. Sorry, and then I drop out immediately after. I'm counting on one of the uh, two of you to win me one of those accelerate uh, alt arts. Oh, yeah. I'm rooting for you. Everyone in the pod gets an Accelerate alt art on uh, Ash Techie. That's really cool. I, I No such always comes up um, with alt arts and, and, like, he did the puppets. He's done all the uh, creepy versions of, like, 
Carl and Brian and Matt. Mattior. Yeah, yeah. Mattior. Um, but yeah, no, he's he's got good stuff. He did the whole, like, I don't know if you guys saw around Christmas. I think he did, like, the Home Alone mm-hmm. alt art. He sent yeah. it in a zip. That was really cool. Um, the other Blitz winner was uh, Ninja again. Oh, so okay. He's on fire. He, uh, yeah, he's he just is. winning left, right, and center. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. Good for him. Oh, yeah. So I have a question on, on Blitz. So I noticed that in my Blitz games, which were highly successful as measured by contributions to other people's success, <laughs> the kinds of decks that people were playing were typically very fast. Now, on the one hand, obvious, like it's a Blitz format. Uh, it says it should be fast. But as I was thinking through it, I don't think there's anything inherently about the format itself that would push you to playing more aggressive decks. Like the number pure number of clicks like matters, but like I don't I don't really see exactly why your deck being able to deliver more damage in fewer turns is inherently better in Blitz. Um is there something that I'm missing here? Is it just that people like leaned into the Blitz theme and therefore went rushy? And then second question, are we just underrating rush? Because I played some rush decks that I was like, I don't see how I would, you know, you could give me 70 minutes or whatever, and I don't know how I would have stopped that. It didn't matter that I had, you know, 13 minutes to try and figure out how to handle it. I don't why well, so i think people would fall to what they're more comfortable with which would tend to be a swing deck mm-hmm. um i ended up using a burn deck uh but uh, it's more that with with units you don't like the the decision point is smaller so you're either saying do i swing do i swing at face or do i swing at a unit but with other cards that are slower like abundance or any of the cards that give you a decision um or even cards that can benefit your opponent at the same time like abundance or generosity there's more to factor in on the timing and to think about exactly what you're doing so i think it just it adds that extra like you know ramia being the classic example of her ability you have to you you have to look at the cards. You have to decide what is going to be important. Then you have to select the order. So, like, even just clicking, there's a lot of things to do. Yeah, I wouldn't play Rimia. Too many. Yeah, clicks. in theory, you can also do that every single turn. Hmm. And then, and then on top of that, you add the sequencing of like, okay, that's a side action. So I also have to focus on my meditations. But um, I, I definitely think you could play a mill deck. Like, if you're playing something more straightforward like leo where just drop some units that naturally do their thing and then whatever your other plan b is like burn or swing should be fine hmm. i mean I, I so matt matt was in my pod and he did play mill hmm. um he went two and two i mean he won some games but my thought was that i don't want a deck that i i, I don't want a deck that wants to go to fatigue because we don't have time to get there. I mean, I don't know. Like, I, all my games I finished with more than five minutes. Yeah, and I, I did too. But I still don't know that even with the time I had left, unless I was playing like a turbo mill type deck, we're necessarily going to get to fatigue. I, 
I just, I just didn't want to worry about that, I guess. And maybe you can do it. Like, maybe that's possible. But I just thought, I'm going to play a deck that wins in, you know, round three sometime. Or loses in round three sometime. And that way I just don't have to worry about the clock. And I'm just going to go all out. And, I mean, I, I played a rushdown deck, basically, that kind of goes balls to the wall. There's natural overhead, Right? There's natural overhead in just more rounds. Right. What you keep, what you meditate, like every time you refresh, you have a whole set of of things to revisit. And that can eat away 30 seconds here, 30 seconds there. So if you do six rounds and say there's up to a minute of overhead each, that's just six minutes of effectively doing nothing to advance your win state and just managing cards in hand and dice and you know it's 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 nothing to for for pushing any sort of condition on winning unless it's fatigue but then it's really like i still don't think that matters yeah because what what, how are you going to win in fatigue in 10 minutes probably by abundance right yeah Uh you'd and if you lose it then i don't know what you do from there well i i had despite my Poor showing, uh, which I blame on how many fallen books I had to click. Uh, I did enjoy the blitz format, and I think, um, like I in general, I love the idea of games that are that have a time limit. Um, and I think there's still some more experimentation to do with the format. Like I think, I think it was like 14 minutes each or 13 minutes each, and then 12, 13. Yeah, it'll, it'll, the top cut will be 12. Like I think we could go 15. Like even just a couple more minutes it's like keeps it snappy but maybe not quite like i i did time out one game and i think my opponent maybe had 30 seconds and i literally think it was like the number of fallen books i, <laughs> I had to click and i would have appreciated not having that be the thing that decided that game but um in any case yeah i think i think it's an awesome format and as you said no such method did a great job organizing and i love all the prize support i'm going to parade out my self-effacing turtle guard turtle guard booby prize with with pride as soon as i can i think you could go shorter like i think 10 minutes is reasonable i I would like 10 minutes yeah yeah i think you can do 10 minutes however i think in that case it would probably make sense to only start the clock after first five selection because the even just the decision once you roll the dice of who goes first is automatically putting the player who rolled the most basics at a disadvantage, even if it's like five, 10 seconds. And there have been some games that come down to that. So if you just freeze it until first player has been selected, Mm. then you could go down to 10 minutes. And I think it would still, you know, be a snappy game. Yeah, I agree. I I like the faster format. I tend to be, I think a player that um, I suffer from analysis paralysis Right, like if I'm in if I'm in a game where I have a lot of thinking and stuff to do, I'm much more. Um, I'm I'm like more prone to making a mistake. I feel like the more time I have to think through things, I second guess and I, you know, triple guess myself, and then I do something I shouldn't do. And in Blitz, I don't have that luxury. Right, I just have to go with like what my gut feel is, and. I feel like I've played I, – I don't think I've made a ton of mistakes. I mean, obviously I make some, but, like, I felt pretty good about 
kind of the way I played. And it was like, I, this format's good for me. It, it takes away all my my second guessing that I leads me into problems in some of these games. So far, so good. We'll see what happens in a couple weeks from now when we do the next episode. Right. Whether it worked out or not. Yeah, and I'll be the bitter comments will be back. <laughs> that one. Yeah. <laughs> I believe in you. I'll do my best. I'd like to have an Altart Accelerate too, but we'll see. Treatment's got me all nervous about playing against the deck Carl's going to play. Well, see, this is the thing. Like, I'm, I'm almost conflicted now because I, it's like, okay, I'm good with Carl winning. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I still, I would still prefer beating him, but if, if beating him means that he doesn't, you know, have the right record, it's like, no, I want that alt art. I'll, yeah. I'll come back, you know, in another tournament. <laughs> right. Yeah, you have two. Ch- I guess we all have two chances to win the alt art. Now that I think about it, which is cool, right? It's like almost like a mini team event, which we should have another one of those for sure. We should. Th- that was fun. If only to get V Jackson Brian back. I doubt he's listening, but it'd be cool to have him. And uh, you know, every. I mean, Nick was part of the team event. It was that was just a great time. And now we got new players. That was awesome. I love that. Let's organize it. We could, yeah. Yeah, Jank- the Jankyard team event. We can do that. <laughs> I just keep signing up to do more things. Like I still have to write articles for the wiki and all this other stuff. And we're doing this so. every time there's an event. I just thought I just automatically sign up for it. Now I don't even look anymore to see what it's about. Yeah. I should have did the webcam one too. I didn't because it was the end of tax season when I started, but like AIL came out. I just signed up. I don't, I don't remember what AIL is. I'm just like, whatever I'm in, <laughs> just sign me up. I, I would want my accountant to take a pause on <laughs> uh, yeah, the last web candor just yeah. for the last last few days. <laughs> yeah, and then AIL, that sign-up's there too. Charlotte, Brian, and Carl, I guess, are all co-managing it. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's cool. And that's it's, it's a Swiss tournament where you can change your deck every round, I think. It's closed list, change your list every round, and it's Swiss. That's the yeah. format of this. And we haven't had a Swiss, like a good old-fashioned Swiss tournament in a while. Really, since Shuffle Bus. Yeah. It's all been kind of the pod stuff or the league stuff. So, kind of excited for one of those to come back. So far, I think we're at 17 or 18 people. So, mm-hmm. for anyone listening, jump on. Hopefully, well, I guess depends when this episode comes out. But Is there still the tiebreaker of, like, the, the more different decks you play, the better your tiebreaker is? Yes. That was a thing before. Okay. Yeah. That's still there. That's cool. It's a great tiebreaker. Probably my favorite one in Ashes tournaments. Yeah. I mean, very unique to AIL, but... And I think they made it a little bit easier. I feel like two AILs ago, it was like color combinations, and I was like doing insane math to figure out how to get more unique color combinations. <laughs> yeah. Different decks, yeah. That's... I mean, I, I, I don't know how they measure it. Obviously, you could sort of game the system and just do some small swaps, but I think it's it's more fun if you take the spirit of it and go completely different. I'll probably just play some, some strong decks and have a few different ones and run them out there. But there have been people in the past, right. That have played AIL and just like, didn't Philly just used to like run Aridel zookeeper constantly and just keep winning. I mean, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) sounds right. (laughs) He did win. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about that though. Then let's talk about you. You were mentioning, you know, playing good decks and, uh, I think someone had come up with a question like how to become a better pilot. And I think that would be an interesting topic to cover. How to get good noob. I think that's the topic. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And like Alfred, I'm still a noob. Alfred, the famous longest tenured new player. 
in ashes. <laughs> Alfred. He's been a noob for like 10 years now, according to him. And we shouldn't listen to him, by the way, because he's good. He is really good. He is good. <laughs> he's good. And he's been on like some winning streak and he was doing that Cole 100 games challenge. I don't know if, if he's still doing that, but yeah, he's been making some splashes. I think Ashes is a uniquely humbling game that causes a lot of people to reassess whether they know how to play it. So at various points. So I have seen or messaged or received messages from several players and i know i've publicly stated myself just how sometimes it's so it just feels crushing like you get on a losing streak mm-hmm. and it feels hopeless you're like what i do i not understand this game like how do i get better and you know sometimes it's like oh yeah I'm, i can see the mistakes individually on a you know from this game to that game that i made but overall how do you become a better player and I don't know, that's an interesting topic that we should try and tackle, you know, as we do, as we solve everything, we'll make, make everybody <laughs> a great player by the end of this episode. Right. The way we talked about doing it was, we don't know how many, how long our top X list is going to be, but we're going to go, we're going to crowdsource between the three of us, uh, going one at a time top tips for how to get good and then we can we can throw it open we'll share the list and and throw it up into other folks to add on so killer do you want to do you want to start us off do you have one ready locked and loaded i've I've got a couple i guess the the first thing the first one i would say is to play known solid deck lists if you want to get good at this game i i I mean, everybody knows I love to build decks. I will. I build a deck almost every day. Um, I haven't shared as many as I have lately because I've been building and rebuilding some of the same stuff. But I th- that's my favorite part of this game and of all card games. I love to deck build. But in order to really improve at the game, I have found it. It's kind of a. It's a. It's it's an empowering feeling, right? To 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 have a deck in your hands that you know is good and use it right like i i do a lot of jank testing and a lot of crazy ideas and for a long time i would just that's the joy i got out of the game was messing around with those combos i didn't win a whole lot and part of it was you know I, i'm playing this weird stuff that's you know, just objectively not as good as the strong stuff is, or I'm just, I don't have enough reps with it to understand the deck, right? Or I was, I would use it as a crutch or an excuse because I didn't want to worry about like taking a strong deck and then feeling the pressure that like, if I don't win with this deck, I know it's my fault, right? And I didn't want to deal with that. But, you know, just eventually I just like, kind of told myself, look, like, if if you want to win games, like, play good stuff. Everybody else is. So, like, just do it, right? And, and like, you know, put your pride to the side and suck it up. If you lose, that's fine. And understand. And it, it does two things for you, right? Number one, it gives you a better chance to win games because your cards are better. Like, your stuff is proven and it's good. And you just have a better chance, period. But... The second thing it does, even if you're not winning, 
when you play, like the, the best way to figure out how to beat something is to play it yourself and understand what it's weak to and why it, how it can lose. And playing those decks and understanding the cards that you're used to playing against and getting beat by, right, will help you to understand how to deal with them. When you see other people beat you, right, now you can take that and apply it back when you play the deck. So it's it goes down to um, what uh, – this is the Jerry Hawthorne quote. Jerry's the a designer of Plat Hat. He didn't do Ashes, but he did um, Mice and Mystics and – some of the other games that they have. Um, he used to be a big HeroScape player, and he would always say, play what you know and know what you play. That was his his big thing, and it rings true, right? And if you know, if if you know the best cards and you're playing, you're you know them inside and out, then you're gonna be a better player. So my tip is swallow your pride, play the good decks, and um you know that it it allows you to focus in on you know why you're really losing the game right we t- we talked about alfred i don't want to pick on him because he's a good player but like he'll come out with like a fiona go no further weird combo deck right and play it a few times and lose and then he's like he's like man i'm just not good at this game and i'm like dude you're playing like you know fiona admonishers like it, you know i'm it's that's not your fault <laughs> right like it's the it's a lot of it's just the deck and it's just a weird combo. You don't you haven't played it enough to understand it. And like there's just better stuff out there. So you you, you but if if you know it's not the deck's fault then that's how you improve. It's it's right there in the name of the unit, admonisher. It's telling you do not play me. <laughs> <laughs> and yet people do. I don't know if he was doing that. I just I, I knew yeah, I know, Fiona, I and I just picked the first card that came to mind. He he has said to me, um, and I know that I have, and definitely had, especially last year, the same sort of mentality of like it's just frustrating to think that you're you're limited in potential success by you know a certain number of cards or a certain group of cards, and you want to break out of that or you want to play things that also are interesting or look fun. And um so that's how I started, you know, when I first joined I, everyone said Noel was one of the worst and I was like but he's so cool and I was determined to play and like win with him and find success that way. And I did to a certain extent and I played it for like three or four shuffle buses. Um and now I like we've talked about it a lot on on our earlier episodes when we were talking about deck building, I think you can still have fun with all kinds of cards, but it's about finding a solid core or solid deck and then finding ways of introducing those cards or at least only using a couple of them, like a small synergy instead of trying to do like an entire deck of all kinds of different cards like start with a deck of like 25 really good cards and then introduce the five ones that you're interested in experimenting with and finding what works and what doesn't or what could support it because that way you're starting like you said with something good and introducing new variables but a smaller subset of them and then you can experiment that way can i build on that one to yeah go ahead so it was precisely along these lines um i've also find my found myself 
building fewer decks um, lately. But I think one of the other big benefits of playing the really strong stuff is it also gives you a feeling for what a really good deck feels like to play. And I love the point that Killer made about what it feels like when an opponent is pushing on exactly the weaknesses of a good deck. Those are both really important pieces of information. But as someone who really likes deck building, I think what I've been pushing myself to do is instead of trying to come up with entirely new ideas, um, I've been thinking about it like writing haiku instead of (laughs) novels. Like just really try and zero in on a very narrow idea or, or take pleasure in the nuance of trying to improve a deck concept that's already feels strong. Um, which is a less like on its face, a less expressive opportunity. Like it's a, there's less personal expression there to say, I'm going to make drain vitality good or something, or I'm going to open everyone's eyes to this combination that people have been sleeping on. Um, But I also think it's where a lot of the pleasure in the game comes from is like, can you figure out which cards to tweak for a given meta in a deck concept that's already really strong um, and play it enough to really feel like that's starting to make a difference in outcomes for that deck. Um, And I'm not there yet. uh, I'll say like, I think I still, if I sit down or I still find myself when I do build a deck um, and the things that inspire me are like big ideas and not really oh, I just came up with exactly the one-card swap that will improve, like, JK's Brennan for the new era of, you know, uh, the meta. But I do think that's that's very inspirational to me, seeing the way JK really made a series of relatively small changes to his deck over time. I think, um, I think that's where to look for improvements. So, yeah, my, my tip would be once you've got a good deck that you're starting to get familiar with. See if you can find pleasure in making small changes to that deck. Constrain yourself, like with the five seven five syllable structure of a haiku, to say I'm going to change just a few cards in this deck to see if I can improve it. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's like I don't know the adage or uh, the the saying: you need to know the rules before you break them. So you start there. You start with something that is a known entity, and then. By branching out that's where you find why something worked right because that's the other thing is if you're newer um but even if you're not if if just you know a deck comes in some tournament and it's like oh wow this was incredible you might not immediately understand by looking at it and just assessing cards at face value why it worked so well um because things like round like draw the draw each round or the the ability to spend dice you can math it out to a certain extent but through repeated plays with it you find what works and what doesn't and the synergies and the answers that are provided like sometimes it's really hard to assess why there's a one one of in a deck it's like what was this possibly for and then you face the matchup or you face a situation you're like oh okay I don't want to see this multiple times, but this was the perfect card. Um, And that's hard to assess. So, yeah, um, I'm definitely on board with that as as the main or opening tip. Um, To follow with that, something that I've been just finding myself because of some of the 
personal challenges I've, I've set is just playing with any deck um, multiple times. So I used to build, you know, a deck or two or three every day or every night. And then I'd get maybe one or two games in with that deck. And then I'd move on. And you don't really find the strengths and weaknesses that way. And you don't know what to refine. And lately I've been playing decks 10 games um, is what I sort of try for. And then it really becomes obvious where it works, where it doesn't, what to make small changes to. Yeah, that's it's big. And that's, you know, again, like I said, I've been building less and doing not building less but building building fewer new decks and just focusing my build time on refining stuff or tweaking stuff rather than a completely new thing and it's for that reason right because i you know i've wanted lately to get better at the competitive side of the game and you really need to do that you need to iterate on your list you need to get really familiar with it and know it, right? There's just too many lines of play in this game for you to be able to pick up a deck that you've never played with before and understand what the best play is in any given situation. And if you look at, you know, arguably um, the best or at least one of the best players, Carl, when he, this was a while back, he showed his stat page and out of a thousand or nearly a thousand games, I think he had like 500 or 400 on hope um, because he was just running it constantly. And that's what he played in a ton of tournaments and he was always successful. Um, and he's even said, you know, just you need to play. Like you can theory craft all day, but you need to play. You need to know the matchups um, that are out there and how your own deck fits against different situations. Uh, so Shman, what's your key piece of advice how do you get good well i i shared one of mine on the uh narrow the narrow the deck building no, challenge no, no, no. i was riding the coattails we all rode the coattails off of killer we got to come up with something okay we can all discuss so i would say um do the math and specifically i've been really impressed with the way that Matt Bowers and Charlotte have been approaching through Ash's normal coaching, I think it's called, um, the deck building process, and specifically how they math out what the dice spread is in a deck. Um, and I think um, this is not something I've adopted, so this is, but this is on my to do list of my, my get good to do list. Um, to actually be disciplined about how to marry a first five plan um with then 25 other cards and the right 10 dice spread that you can consistently play um the cards that you draw in impactful ways and you don't always have to play all five cards in your hand uh, but you always want to spend all 10 dice in impactful ways so um if you haven't checked it out i'd i'd look up i think matt has pinned the post or charlotte's pinned the post um on ash's normal coaching uh that goes through the math um but basically it looks at what you're going to need um for your first five as well as then what your recurring costs on your spell board are going to be and then um what the average costs basically are going to be after you've accounted for your spellboard spells um 
to then come up with effectively a kind of average um, need for different kinds of dice and you do some rounding and you get at uh, a dice spread that works. Um, I think just in addition to the discipline of of just thinking through first five combinations and doing that kind of math for your preferred combinations and making sure it'll work for other kinds of first five combinations, um, which I think is just a good practice to actually consider how your how the first round is likely to play out. Um, it also subtly, I think, pushes you away from running too many colors, um, which I think is a major theme recently. People having more success with two or three color decks that um, or even mono decks in the case of Lark that I think really make this kind of math easy. Uh, you can do this math with more complicated um, card combinations, but the variance is definitely going to get higher. I can't, not strong enough at probability and statistics to actually <laughs> demonstrate that to be true, but I can say with a pretty high degree of confidence that the more colors you're running and the higher you're spreading things out, the more likely you are to have hands where you just can't play the cards that you'd like to play and you're using your dice in really suboptimal ways because of the the pressure on the dice. So I think actually taking the time to do the math in deck construction um, is is valuable. And while I trust my intuition to some degree, I think I could probably improve pretty substantially on intuition, especially in the first run at building a deck by actually figuring out what the dice needed are going to be. Yeah, that's a great one. And it's something that I need to do more of because I really just do a rough estimate of like anywhere from three to five dice per uh, or costs per dice. And uh, the way that Charlotte and, and Matt do it is is not difficult. It's, it's actually like once you know sort of the process, it's pretty easy. And it would just make things so much easier if you took a deck that you already had and then go back and it's like, is this dice spread correct? I don't know if this is true or maybe it's just the the way my play has changed but something I've noticed is that you need to slow down in in your in-game play and by that I mean playing not slowly like you know making slow decisions but um, slowing down your dice expenditure slowing down the aggression of how often um, or how early you're making attacks. Uh, obviously, something that is has been noticed for a long time is anytime you jump in a game with Brian, um, just even just watching it, he's always way ahead on his dice. Uh, you know that he'll be like seven. He has seven dice, and his opponent has three. And it's like it's just amazing to watch, but it gives you so many more options. And I've watched like you, Spendrix, I've watched you play and you have a really good ability to just sort of conserve and be really efficient with your actions or with your passes. Um, and passing is something that not a, lot, not a lot of new players appreciate in terms of the tempo that it can give you by stretching yourself over the round. And then, you know, once your opponent's out and you have multiple actions left, you can do anything. Um, it's kind of like chess that way where the first person sometimes to, to strike or to start the chain of events um, ends up behind because you run out of things that you can do where you put yourself into a corner. Um, and so 
there are obviously decks, aggro decks, where you just want to swing big, swing fast, and then follow up with burn. Um, you know, you have to know what those decks are. But uh, I have found myself just trying to take more time in sort of trickling out my cards and my actions. Yeah, I think that this metagame specifically really kind of shines a light on that principle. Um, I was going to bring that up as my next thing, right, was patience. It was what I was going to say, but you just said everything I was going to say in mine. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, it, especially in this meta where we have, it's, you know, that we've taken the top fast decks, right, the, the, the Brennan Burn, the Hope Creeper, the stuff that overwhelmed everybody, those are gone. And then Chan of Transfusion and Phoenix Attendant get introduced. And, you know, we, we talked about it last episode, right? The metagame just immediately, like, kind of grinded to this halt. Not a halt. There's still fast decks out there, and Blitz is proving that, I think. But um, there's de- it's definitely a lot grindier than it was before. And that just rewards these patient plays so much more. Like, y- you have... The, the player that's more patient now has the time in a lot more matchups to slow down on their dice spend, you know, make a good, make a, make an attack instead of summoning a unit or, you know, a, a, take a passive main action. And what I mean is not pass, but like summon a salamander monk or summon a three eyed owl or <clears throat> that's been my favorite one lately is three eyed owl as like the the punt main action basically yeah where you don't know what you necessarily want to do and you want to see what your opponent has so i just like slap the three-eyed owl out there um and it's like i i try and save three-eyed owl usually for later in the round um because i want it to survive because that's when it gets to do its thing but also because its ability to look at a card in the opponent's hand it's it's really fun to do that when they have one card left in hand, mm-hmm. right? And you and I've done a lot recently with a couple different owl decks. So you play the owl. I know what's in your hand now, and now I know every option that you have, right, for the rest of this round. Right. And but so I try and kind of hold the owl until later, but because I do that, it's typically available to me to summon because I don't do it early. So if I get into a spot where like, okay, in this board state, I don't really want to do anything, but I don't want to pass because for whatever reason, a pass isn't good here. So I'll just make my owl now. And that's, that's one thing about this unit is it's, it's, you know, it can be a blocker for you, a cheap two life blocker, and it can still do something at the end of the round. But I found that one to be kind of a good like punt main action. So I was thinking of of like punting main actions because there are cards that we talk about sometimes like Call Upon the Realms. Yeah, is one that's like that. But um, even just because it's immediately on my mind, I just played some of Red Rains and the campaign. If you do have access to it um, and you're listening, I think that Red Rains really sort of showcases the idea of patience. And, and playing it out because if you play too fast in solo mode and you just start swinging and dropping units 
um, you will run out, especially in round one, of things to do. And then, you know, the aspects still have to be turned over. They still get to be revealed and then attack. There's a lot of things, and you'll just be sitting there doing nothing. And that's when you get hurt. But it behooves you to be more patient when you're playing against the Chimera. So if you do have access to it, um, I think it showcases that concept really well. It's pretty amazing the way that solo mode of the game actually teaches core concepts in the game itself, like the value of removal, for example. Like, on this point of patience and what Red Reigns can teach you, I just think one of the most brilliant things about how that's designed is the fact that Nick largely removed, for all but the final swing, the distinction between board control and swinging face with blood points, where you advance your win con by removing the chimera's aspects like that's how you reduce its health and i think that's generally what the best players do often um in a lot of situations uh is like it's not uncommon for carl for example just not to swing face until it's lethal and like he'll do Mm -hmm. damage because his opponent guards valuable units but all his attacks are just sent into units, even units that's like he'll send a two two and to exhausted, you know, one one just so that he's got a clear board to start the next round. And that you know, that's something I'm still <laughs> I'm still learning where I'm like, oh man, Carl's got like six undefendable damage and he just sends it into exhausted units on his opponent's side, and I have to check myself to remind myself that yeah, that his win condition ultimately is through board control and leaving those units up is still are still units he's going to have to deal with to actually win the game. Um, so I think that's a really good one. And I would just say to Killer's point earlier about passing, um, the two things I look for about when to pass versus when not to pass. One is, and this has come up a lot, is just look at the total dice value of your units versus your opponent's units. And if you're ahead... It's generally true that it's some that's safe to pass if you'd like to, um, but the reason not to do it, even if you're ahead on dice, is because it would refresh your opponent's valuable abilities or books. So, like you have more dice available, but re- passing would refresh Harold's Mark Prey or Mayone's uh, Command Strike. Those are moments where I think in round it's worth trying to figure out how to maximize the advantage that you have on the board whereas if the reverse is true like if you're both ahead on dice value of units on the board and you're ahead and you've got valuable abilities left uh exhausted that you would like to refresh then i think it's pretty clear that a pass is often a a really nice play it's really hard to make any sort of golden rules but definitely if you've spent more dice already um and you are also even or head on board, then passing makes a lot of sense. Or, if, you know, if your opponent you know for sure is tapped out of options, then that's the time to, you know, probably keep your foot on the gas. Yeah, and that's a really good point. The m- most valuable refor- re- resource that generally refreshes between rounds is dice. So that's, that's crucially important. Do you guys 
how like in first fives um or or round one do you have anything that you do you really think about the conjuration pile and like oh okay this is what they probably have or do you think about like do you try and anticipate exactly every card that they're going to play like do you think oh this is going to be a gates open so it's going to be six units and it's going to be this like do you math it all out or do you just sort of do a rough estimate or even just you know this is my plan a i'm going to play my plan a and then see how it goes i i know for me most of the time i can just say that i play the plan a i mean i do a little bit of guesswork sometimes on like all right who 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 are you what colors are you in what what do i generally think you're gonna do and do i have anything in my deck that just completely wrecks that right right if i do then yeah i should start that if i don't then i'm probably just on my plan a um, I guess one example is, you know, we, we talked on our last episode about that, that sorry, a deck that we all played in Ashcon and whether or not we should keep a shadow garden in it or to deal with a realm walker. Um, I played it the other day and it, it was against, uh, maybe GGG, I think, or either him or big bang boy. It was one of the two of them. I play both of them a lot in the mornings and, uh, I played that sorry, uh, and I was up against a Symbali that was in Illusion in Time. So I said, okay, th- this is the time where you start the Shadow Guard, right? So I I opened the Shadow Guard, and um, they opened a Realm Walker. I just calmly laid down some books, and then they slapped the hunting weapons on and attacked me, and I got all giddy for a second, right, and played my Shadow Guard, and kill the realm walker and he was just like all right i guess that's good game like right then yeah the rest of his hand was like adrenaline rush and stuff to refresh the realm walker and it's like so yeah in that case i mean that that's a pretty extreme example right but that's why the shadow guard was there so i used it for that but generally it's plan a but i want that plan a to be a really good plan a um, and I, it, it's the mark of a good deck where you have a for like a very, very strong first fives. Um, a lot of my deck building and I think others too, and the good decks will showcase this has a really strong open. Like I, I value a first five that brings both consistency and round one power, right? Like when you can find a, a first five that not only sets you up for the rest of the game, but also does something that's generally above the curve. And I know that's a very subjective term, but that's kind of how I think about it in my head is like, I, I want like a really, a a big combo or just a bunch of big damage or a lot of, a lot of life. that's tough to deal with Um, stuff like that, that I can, throw out there in round one and as long as i feel like i have a really strong plan a i'm not too worried about the conjuration counts and that kind of stuff i mean i'll like i said try and just look at the dice and the phoenix born and get a general idea in my head of what's coming but i'm not deviating too much from my plan unless i've got something that i really think blows the game out so hashtag unchained meteor is what you're saying (laughs) yeah (laughs) i think that's a i think that's a really good one I totally, I have come around to this idea. I got, when I was playing the Realm Walker Realm of the Absurd deck, actually, I got really obsessed with first, it was 
in a period when I was really obsessed with first round counterplay, and I actually added Ice Trap to that deck as I was going through all of the potential responses to this combo that were problematic, specifically for Shadow Guard. Um, and I never played a deck that featured Shadow Guard <laughs> in because uh, who at that time that was not a very common card at all. Um, but what I've come around to now is like, uh, it's nice when I have multiple first fives that I think are pretty powerful, but like, I think if I feel like I need to, to change more than one to two cards for any given first five against any given matchup, that's actually pretty problematic. Um, like I think that indicates that my plan A might not be strong enough and I'm really pretty highly dependent on making the right calls in the face of an opponent's deck and like that can go badly wrong. I played Asterix, Symboli on Illusion, Divine, Time, Nature. I was like, this looks like Hunting Weapons Realm Walker to me, which was surprising and interesting because Asterix, I think, <laughs> has gone on the record that he doesn't think very highly of that deck. Um, and it was not, in fact, any of those things. It was like something completely different. Um, but I played around first first round sequencing predicated on that now it was with this uh herald deck that we've been testing which is strong enough that it didn't really matter that i was kind of rushing units out um to make it a lot harder for any kind of realm walker shenanigans to function um and i ultimately was able to pull out a win in that game but like that's the kind of danger when you don't have a strong enough plan a and you're you're flexing first fives pretty hard to read your opponent's matchups it's like you get those reads wrong and maybe it's different in a in an open list game versus a closed list game but um i still think you want to be the you want to be the one whose first five demands answers and if your first five doesn't demand answers in the first round i think you are on the back foot from the very first turn and you're in a really dangerous spot agreed yeah, yeah. I I have more anecdotes and memories of games, especially in tournaments uh, with open list, when I tried to do the 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 counter, you know, first five picks and sacrificed what was my strongest open, just because I thought, oh well, if they play this, and you know, you get into the mind games, and then you yeah. all of a sudden second guess yourself. And when they don't play what you thought, or th- even if they play something else, you know, it it just all of a sudden puts you on the back foot because you're like, shoot, now I'm not on my plan. Now I hope I draw into my plan, you know, by round two. Um, and I haven't set up my own threat because I was trying to counter their threat immediately. And that's why usually, you know, a first four is what you sort of aim to have and then that fifth is the flex maybe it's if you expect swarm you have a nature's wrath or something like that if you or multiple ping units if you think it's a knight you pack some sort of removal fester two shadows whatever but you have to have at least your core idea and not i i find more success not deviating from that yeah and the first four like i think i default in some ways to the fifth card being like am i gonna play enchanted violinist or golden veil depending on like whether i'm facing an odette that might have sort of virtue to remove a big threat of mine and like 
it doesn't have to be the one cost a one cost card that's your flex like you could have you could have four cards and have one open that's like to stay in the general card colors like beast tamer and um nature power or you could have like a knight that you could play in colors instead as kind of three dice that you're flexing so it doesn't have to always be like the easy one card one dice swap i do think just to give another thing that uh i need to get better on and i think is a i think consistent way that to get good is testing with a high degree of intention and especially testing first rounds so i think it's very true that your first five selection probably doesn't depend much on what your opponent's first five is if, if you've developed a strong deck with a clear plan a however i think sequencing is hugely important and hugely dependent on your read of your opponent's first five like you do not want to necessarily be well when you could first five meteor you don't want to be spamming units <laughs> face of a of a meteor or like in a if you think you're facing a gates open and you know that that's going to pressure your units aggressively passing early on so that you could potentially get value, say, on your own nature's wrath that you've first five, like, and then testing those sequencing choices, I think, in the first round over and over again, or at least a few times, I think is super, super important. I agree. I think the sequencing of how you lay out your books or how you lay out your units in the first round is way more important than the fifth card that you pick. Um, and and even just, you know, when or if you choose to attack versus pass. Um, because you want... Your, your first round is fixed. And you want to carry as much advantage over into the second round as possible when you're refreshing your cards that then open up a whole lot of branching opportunities. I was going to say that something else that I don't do um, and I should because I think it's it's really good is recording my own games and watching them because it is way easier as an observer to recognize or see mistakes. Um, like even when I watch uh, Clues games or Inquisitors games or I see games that are just pop, you know, on Ashtaki and I jump in, you can sort of learn a lot more when you don't have to manage all of the decision space yourself and you're just being able to see what sort of cards are being played or what the order is and learning from how the opponent responds um versus when you're in game you know you already have your own stress and you're thinking of like oh what is left in my deck and what do i have to worry about so if you record your games then you get to watch those back and be like oh this is what i should have done and in that case it's also a deck you have so you know whether you need to refine it or not but watching other players games all the way through can be really helpful and i think i've learned more watching tournament games carl's games brian's games you know whoever is just online you, you both of you guys when you play i think i learn a lot more that way um, because i just don't have simply the ability to crank out as many games like in a given day or week but i can hop in for 20 minutes and catch you know a few rounds yeah it's a good point i mean you know you're you're, you're being a student of the game really right and i mean that's how you get good at anything mm-hmm. is watch and try and observe and learn 
Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, I learned a lot from watching, um, also playing against the good players as well. Like I, you know, there used to be a little bit of intimidation factor in jumping in a game with someone that's really good. Um, and th- I mean, there, there used to be that for me. I'm not really like that anymore. I've just gotten over it. That's because you're one of those top players. <laughs> <laughs> you're like the top, top four, top five. Yeah, but. It, it it still doesn't you know it doesn't feel that way yeah to me right but like it the, I know I'm sh- I'm I guess what I'm saying is I felt that like pressure mm-hmm. and I think other people feel that way like it's, it's you know not I don't know if I want to jump into a game and just get crushed oh yeah but like it's like that's how you learn um like it's you just gotta. I don't know. I just got to bite the bullet and do it. And I just, I just like offered myself up right as a sacrifice to, to those people sometimes like here, just kill me and show me what I'm doing wrong. And you know, all the ashes players are awesome and nice too. And they'll all talk to you and like, I mean, get in the game, chat about what's going on. Right. Like I, when I play Brian, I just played him a little bit ago and um, I'm like, you know, in game, like I, I do something and then I immediately regret it. <laughs> it was like before he's even acted, I'm like, oh, that was bad. I'm typing in the chat, you know, and um, maybe it's just I do that with him a lot. Maybe it's just because he's so good at like, like if you make a mistake, he's going to like capitalize right away. Um, and it it's just it's very clear when you do something that you shouldn't have done. Um, and it. But, you know, maybe maybe some of that is just I'm learning because I'm playing more and getting better at the game. I'm learning to recognize my mistakes faster. But um, I, I, I guess maybe that's a point of mine. Just, you know, play against the good players or reach out to them, right, and ask them things. Um, and, you know, like our, our little – our group, right? We've been kind of group testing. It's just cool to bounce ideas off of people and get their take on things, right? Like Schmendrix, you suggested Meteor in that Herald deck today. Um, I put it in. I played a Meteor. It was very instrumental in the game that I won. Um, and like I, uh, Flora and I have a DM that's always open. That's just basically like Aridel. It's just yeah, how do we make Aridel good right now? Um, no surprise there. And we're we're talking about that all the time. Um, you know, Brankus and I talked about. Yeah, could you stop? Could I, no. Yeah, like Jesus, stop <laughs> making decks that she just crushes everyone. With. Aridel's good though, and I she's my favorite Phoenix born, so I want her to be good. And Flora's great, so more power to her. Yeah, yeah. But like like Brankus and I went back and forth on Brendan Byrne when he was. You know, in that tournament that he was in. So get good. Get into Killer's DMs. That's the answer right, right. there. Why do we have all this conversation? Slide in. Slip into the DMs. Play the best decks that he creates and slip in the DMs. Okay. Is there, uh, like, to, to either of you um, or both of you, do you guys have, like I said, it's hard to make a concrete rule um, and so much of good play is contextual, but do you guys have any strong generalizations that you know 
more often than not is is a true specific thing that you should do in game like we talked about passing a little bit um one of the classic things is is that you should generally always spend your 10 dice in round one um that's like sort of a core rule that we tell a lot of new players but is there anything else that you guys can think of i don't know how how much insight i have to offer on this one it is hard to generalize i mean one thing i learned pretty early on um but i still have to remind myself at times or or let me put it differently it still shapes to a high degree how i think about how a round plays out um and it gets back to the patience point so i don't know if this is a new point or just a sub point to that one is make sure you get value from units that are threatened with removal so like if you can if there are times where opponents like removal plans are being telegraphed like um they don't have um they don't have easy access to damage that can totally kill a three health unit but they ping it you know at one point and you know setting up a later two damage attack that you've already used your guard and it's going to be hard to prevent um like you need to find a high value attack with that unit or some other way to get value or let me put it differently. Your round will go a lot better if you can still find some value to salvage from that unit. Um, you don't want to put yourself in a position where you can't get any value. You're basically letting your opponent take two main actions to remove your unit because you've put yourself in a position where there's no value to to, t- to get out of it um, if they do that. like Those are the kinds of things that as I've gotten better, I am thinking a few steps ahead about. And it's in part driving decisions about holding back units to try and get my opponent to use some of their removal tools earlier in the round or on other targets so that I don't have to deal with those kinds of dynamics and I can actually use those units. But like Killer and I played with a game earlier. I was on the Herald. Um, Multiple times I had Sonic Swordsman in hand and I just never played it because I just didn't anticipate a situation in which I was actually going to be able to set up the, you know, a play uh, that was going to be valuable before the hope that killer was on was going to be able to remove it. So I just, you know, found other ways to spend the dice. Um, I don't know if y'all have any other generalizations that are more insightful than that one. Well, that's, that's an interesting point because in, in that same game, I kept expecting the Sonic Swordsman right and was and was trying to plan my round around getting rid of it before you got the hunter's mark kill something with it um but that's a that's an you know another thing happened that's a really good example of what you're talking about um getting value out of units is important and it's because you know if ashes is a game of inches right not miles and like when you if if I play a two dice unit and I get to attack with it and then you kill it, I've gotten my two dice, right? If you spend two dice to kill it after I've gotten my value with it, we're even basically. Um, if I spend two dice on a unit, you spend two dice to remove it, especially if that two dice includes a body and I didn't get to swing it. Now I'm losing. Like I lose that trade. Um, and understanding that is kind of key to 
Like, that's why Brian always has more dice than his opponents, because he understands that and will make those trades happen in his favor more often than not. Um, a, a, a blaring example of that today, this is the, the most simple example ever, right? In the game that Schmendrix and I played, I had a false demon on the board. Schmendrix took a main action, and then side action, Hunter's marked my false demon, Right, so now I have a false demon with Hunter's Mark on it. The thing is dead, right? One way or another, I just immediately swung it. <laughs> My next turn, it's like I'm. It's going to die. All he has to do is frog ping it, and it's dead. Next turn, I just swung the thing because I, I I didn't even know what I swung it at. It didn't matter. I just wanted to get my two damage. I swung it at whatever the best thing I felt like I could swing it at was. Um because I wanted to make sure I got value out of that thing. That's the most blatant example of it that I can possibly think of. Um, usually the the situation is a lot more nuanced than that. But um, another one that happened... Free Lightbringer, baby. Yeah, right. <laughs> it kind of was. Um, another one that happened today that is a, is a pretty good example. Um, I was playing against Brian. He was Brennan um, playing the Burn version, and he he played like a Blood Puppeteer. And then on his next turn, he swung the blood pup- the blood puppeteer because obviously he wants to spirit burn it and send the blood puppet over to me and do two damage. But he wants to get the one attack value out of the blood puppeteer first um, because you doesn't have to be unexhausted. So it's just little stuff like that um, is can be really important and it's just something you don't want to forget about. And it, it's tough to anticipate the removal a lot sometimes that might be coming for you. And that's where, you know, experience with the card pool and, you know, what available options a player can possibly have in his hand to remove your stuff comes in. You know, the more knowledge you have about that, the more likely you're going to be to swing that unit before it gets pink festered or whatever the removal option happens to be it's specifically impossible for me to predict survival of the fittest which seems to continuously just absolutely <laughs> yeah, blow me up yeah asterix got a huge one on me when we played uh, yeah he's the only person that plays that card so it that should probably be changed <laughs> it should probably change because it is like that's such a cool card in the card pool that that's 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 a card that removes everything that doesn't have a damage and exhaustion or an alteration or a status token on it so uh, because it turns like the whole be patient thing on its head. It's like, okay, you're going to sit back and wait for high value targets for your swings. Okay. Well, I'm going to lay waste to everything for three dice. I've, I've been hit by it a few times against him and that's like, oh man, well, there goes, there goes a night and a couple units. Cause I thought I was being patient. Um, I have a couple, uh, interested to hear you guys thought cause like I said, I've, I've been thinking, I think just before my vacation, I said I was going to write up or start writing up some strategy tips on the wiki. So some of these are just floating around my head. One of them um, is you should, much like with round one where you know your, your dice expenditure, in subsequent rounds, you should be planning your dice expenditure or at least seeing how much you, like sometimes you'll have cards and with your cards and your spells together, you might not even be spending all your dice. 
So then you look for other ways of like, am I going to possibly recur something or am I going to frog ping or am I going to divine buff, like whatever it is. But you want to try and make sure that you are going to maximize your dice value or at least that you have a plan for it. Um, and so along with that, uh, I would say in general, it's probably it makes the most sense to to assume that you're going to utilize all of your ready spells. Um most of the time you want to carry that advantage over they're already there so that's just a good way of sort of assuming what your dice spend is going to be and then as a follow-up unless you're facing illusion or obvious spin down like a magic siphon pre-meditating all of your dice that you'll need is often good especially if you have some dice powers that can be used in other ways I've watched countless games where, and even I think as, as recently as one of the recent tournaments, if Shadow had just meditated up uh, Divine Power early in the round, like turn one, he would have had it eight turns later for the final swing and win. Things like that. Or if people had just meditated up a ceremonial earlier, they could have recurred a unit and and gone that way or, or an illusion power to spin down reactions. So unless you're facing spin down, there's very little reason not to have some of those spun up. That goes doubly true when you have decks that use a lot of side actions as well. Yes. Yeah, I don't know how many times I've been in a situation where, like, I really wanted to frog ping something and I just didn't have a frog because I didn't... Or, or I needed to... um, I need to use a side action right now to, like, chant of revenge or chant of transfusion or something, but I can't because I have to meditate in order to do the thing I want to do the next turn or, or in order to put the unit down that I want to put down right now. And had I just meditated round one, I wouldn't have had to worry about that. Or turn one, I should say. I wouldn't have had to worry about that. I mean, I yeah, I would broaden this point a little bit just to say that I think managing side action economy in general is a really core skill to the game. I, in some ways, I feel actually a lot... Main actions, you're trying to find something to do with your main actions, and then side actions, you're trying to figure out how to get all your side actions done often. Uh, it's like that's where the action economy piece comes in, and it's why like accelerates a cool card in a lot of situations. Uh, and it's also why, like, I'll, I never feel comfortable playing Harold. I mean, I know he's a powerful Phoenixborn, but just something about the side action economy and playing him, it's subtle, it's like. But trying to time, like, am I ready to drop the mark and swing at the right time? Like, do I need to meditate? Should I be using a dice power? It's like, it gives me fits. I don't understand. But it just requires reps. And it's like a subtle thing where I think, yeah, managing side action economy effectively, packing all your meditations in, making sure you've meditated up enough that you can use a side action, nature ping as a bypass or removal tool when you need it. Like, those things matter a whole lot and it's if we go back to the earlier point about playing the same decks over and over again like this is the kind of thing that you get better at the more plays you have with a deck because you start to learn where the really high value side actions to prepare are yeah for sure another one and this is again this is broad generalizing but i think there are certain phoenix born that you can make a very strong assumption of them starting their unique 
and and or not or never starting their unique and same thing with using their ability or never using their ability in particular in the first round so when you're trying to anticipate what your opponent might have somebody like Harold or anybody with a free ability you can basically assume that that's going to be part of their plan so you should you should be taking that into account there are certain phoenix born that you can assume nearly will always include their unique like Tristan or maybe a, a Xander. Um, Fear for Jessa was typically a card that would almost always be in the first five. Um, and then there are other Phoenix Born or obviously Mayoni, uh, Soraya, right? Anybody who has a, a spell board will generally include it. And then there's other ones that will almost never include it. Um, something like Aerodel. Blue Jaguar, unless it's Flora, uh, will never see play. There are things like that. And you should know those because it helps you. It's just one more factor that you can anticipate and one more thing that you can account the opponent's dice being spent on. Like, you know, Airedale will always water blast. Um, so there's those are easy. It's like times tables. They're just some things that you can just learn and internalize and most of the time be safe on those assumptions. I don't know what you guys think about that. No, I totally agree. And the one I would add is Echo, who I think often, like Echo's almost the shape of the entire game is shaped in a lot of cases by his, the combination of his Phoenix born ability and his um, unique and chaos gravity where, yeah, playing against Echo often feels completely different than playing against a lot of phoenix born where it's just this game of like do i have enough am i producing enough bodies and removing enough of his really big game ending threats you know fast enough that i'm gonna avoid getting the you know isolated blocker that's just gonna get taken out of the the match with um gravity flux i agree and um you know odette's another one that often starts her unique because she can do one you can use it two different ways. It's almost always good to have it. Sort of virtue, yeah. Two dice, either re- remove all tokens from your unit or just destroy an opponent's unit. Right. She can usually find something good to do with it, so it's almost always in the first five. Um, well, another thing I was kind of thinking through, and it goes to, you know, treatment you talked about, you know, have a plan to spend your dice, right, and and know kind of what you expect to do with it with them in a given round. I so there's like levels to that, right? I feel like that's like like that's a really good like, you know, like you said a broad generalization and something that you generally should do each round. But like the next step to that, I feel like is not locking yourself into that plan and being willing to pivot out of it if the situation calls for it. And understand and no and again goes back to playing the deck over and over again to know all the lines. Um knowing what you can do if you do pivot out of it. Yeah. And I, I feel like the the best players treat each turn like its own separate game, so to speak, right? Like you look at the you, it's your, you know, the turn passes to you, analyze the board state. Here's all of my options. What is the best thing that I can do right now? I I feel like it's very easy to plan out your dice for the round and say, okay, 
you know, I'm, I'm going to summon this thing, then I'm going to summon this thing, then I'm going to summon this thing, then I'm going to attack here. And like, I've gotten into situations where I plan that out and I just kind of like go on autopilot and do it and then miss something that was either a completely obvious play that I shouldn't have missed or skipped over an opportunity to pivot out of that line to give myself an advantage. Right. Well, I, I mean, I don't want to the takeaway to be that you should sequence your entire round, but like say, especially if you have certain cards in hand and you only have a certain number of dice. So you have a golden veil, you have an enchanted violinist, um, and you only, and maybe a return soil, but you only have one charm. You know that you're going to probably play one of those cards. And to your point, like you should, you should wait until the opportune time where you have to lock yourself in because then that will potentially affect how your other cards are spent. And that's why basic sinks are so valuable because you can reallocate, um, for a while until you're locked in. Um, but at least you know, okay, that's gonna that's gonna be one of my dice. It's gonna be one of these cards, and then the rest can be whatever. And there there are things that you can anticipate. Other, it's obviously easier if you can't spend all your dice because yeah. it, you know you draw a bad hand or whatever. But um, sometimes you have multiple knights, and they might be overlapping dice types, um, and it. Yeah, you have to decide, am I going to play a Sonic or am I going to play a Master Vampire? And they both use Sympathy, and I only have one Sympathy. Or I have two Sympathy, but I want to play Salamander Monk for sure. I think this is um, it's a pretty crucial point, and I think it's, again, to connect this to some of the other topics we've talked about, I think it's why you need to play the same decks over and over again, why you need to watch high skill players... Um, why you need to play strong decks because often the strongest decks actually you'll just find that you have these options coming up in your hand multiple ways to uh, spend 10 dice effectively Um, and I think the cognitive load is drastically reduced when you start to build pattern recognition for the game and it's why I think early on in the game when I was playing it felt you know the Covenant guys talk about this when they play because they don't play super frequently it's like it's a brain burner it's a real thinker and like it is that's definitely true because you have so many options on your turn every turn really is really rich in the number of lines you can pursue but I also think the more you play obviously the more you recognize patterns and the more you boil it down like in chess instead of pawn formations here we're talking about like where is the dice value on the opponent's board or where is it likely to come from and what do i you know what things actually lose me the game versus just are things the opponent is going to be doing that i can readily respond to and i think that just drastically simplifies the number of options there's still opportunities to pivot but in truth i think you know, maybe in a round there are a couple moments where like there are hugely important pivotal decisions, but a, a lot of the rest of the round, like um, you probably can stick fairly close to a plan, or at least a plan that's you know that is being informed by the pattern recognition on your opponent's side. The last thing I'll say here is like the mo- last month has been really hard. It reminds me a lot of the month after Tristan and Rowan came out. Like I just. I find it to be a huge struggle when the meta changes pretty significantly because all my pattern recognition gets thrown completely out the window and I'm trying to figure out new lines. And it's like, it's part of the reason why I feel like I'm back to being 
a new player sometimes is because it feels like being a new player again when I like didn't understand what to anticipate from my opponents in in any way. Well, especially when the meta is in flux and you can't anticipate what you're gonna play. Well, you guys saw it last week, so but well, we did, but there was there was that that two week period where everyone was playing something different, trying to figure out the new thing, trying to figure out the new synergies, and so going into any given match, it was like I don't know even know what I'm going to play, and I'm still trying to figure out how my deck f- matches up against certain synergies. So it it can be very difficult um, and experimental. But yeah, we did solve it, and I think we've solved how to be. Uh, a top five player. I've got 14 items. You want to hear our top 14 ways to be a, to get good so far? Oh my gosh. You've actually been note taking. Look yeah. at this. You, this <laughs> is what happens when all three of us are around. All right. Number one. Now, if I, if it were a little earlier in the evening, I would have organized these by theme, but you don't get that. Um, number one, play known good decks. That was from killer. Number two, I'm going to give myself credit for this one. It's an extension of that one is write haiku or you know take pleasure in building decks with nuances instead of taking big swings on new decks three the treatment uh play with a deck consistently um four do the math uh that was matt and charlotte shouting out ash's normal coaching five slow down in game uh play and play with patience and i think that was treatment and killer Six, play plan A and make sure that your best first five plan demands a response from your opponent um, and that consistent round one power is the goal. Seven, test with intention, especially first round sequencing. And we agreed that in a lot of cases, sequencing in the first round actually matters more than the selection of your fifth flex card in a first five. Eight, watch gameplay, yours and other high skill players. Nine, play against the good players. 10, pay attention to value in trades. Uh, 11, plan dice expenditures for a round. 12, manage your side action economy. So that's like meditating all at once. 13, always know your opponent's unique and ability. That's actually one I wrote down in a notebook I kept of Ash's games early on because I, <laughs> I kept forgetting uh, and getting surprised by it. And then 14, uh, prepare to pivot uh, in the round. So know where your pivot points are uh, in your in your plan for the round. So... 14 easy steps. We should we should get to 15, though. 15, that's a better All number. Right. If you're in nature, have a frog up. <laughs> that's 15. Okay. I'm serious. This is true. I, like, I, this is something I've noticed. Like, watching Carl and Brian, specifically those two. Right. I feel like they always have a frog. Always. Yeah. If, if they're not against a Dreamlock Mage, there's always a frog there. It, but but it's it's it makes a lot of sense, and here's why, you know, like it, it. First of all, it's the best dice power. Period. Second of all, if you pass into them, right? If you pass into a player that has a frog up, they always have the option to side action frog, main action pass, and that's very strong, right? Just yeah. that play in it in and of itself, and it's just I I, I like if they're not against a dreamlock mage. That's going to constantly just spin the frog right back down. I feel like every time that they take a turn and don't have a frog showing, the side action always med- is always meditate frog. Mm. That's a good one. You know, maybe it's not just a blanket, always have a frog showing. But, like, 
it's more of I don't know, and maybe it is. Just have frog will travel. <laughs> you should have a frog, yeah, have right? A frog. If you're in nature, have a frog ready because you're probably one way or another. You're going to get use out of the stupid thing in a, in a lesser way, but still that isn't important in terms of mind games. Is if you always have a charm power up, right? If you always have the snake, but um, no, frog power is is always good. Or almost always good. But so. and I mean, really, that that side action frog main action end the round pass. Yeah, is like like that's a threat that you have. Like if you if you want to like aggressively pass, you have to be worried about that if there's a frog showing. Yeah, and if there's not, it's easier to make that pass if or if they don't have a side action to like do something to your board and then pass behind you. Oh, for one, that's less uh, one closing one. Okay, this is the bonus yeah, round. This is bonus round. Okay. okay. <laughs> so this is not going to be tactical, but I'll just say um, no shame in losing ever, basically. And don't give your, yourself any excuses for doing so. Like, I think that's something we've talked about a lot about mindset and exploring to what extent our love of jank is actually just a fear of failure in disguise. Um, but I think that goes hand in hand with also just like giving yourself a lot of grace. This game's really hard. The best players find it incredibly difficult, or at least that's what I tell myself. And it's just, you're going to experience losing streaks. Like if you want to get good at this game, you're going to experience a lot of losses. Uh, and that's just the nature of the beast. And you have to give yourself a lot of grace in doing so. For sure. And it, hap- it happens at every level. That's way easier said <laughs> than done. Way easier said than no, it's really hard. Find yourself some friends who will buck you up when you're feeling blue. This game, I mean, like, you know, any, I think any competitive thing gets into this. But this game for me, I don't know, it's just kind of brought all that out. Whenever I have a loss, like a big, like crushing loss. And you've had so many. <laughs> I just go off the rails for a while. Like it. I, I lost that finals game to Lark. I think I talked about it last week or last time. I lost that finals game. And then I, I, I lost like my next three Phoenix League games or something. Like I just stopped winning for like for a couple weeks because and but you're right. You have to just say, like, look, this game's tough and there's so many options and so many lines and so many little teeny tiny things that can cause a loss that you just have to, you got to have a short memory play in this game. And, and you have to not only have a short memory, but also have a, you know, like I think I said earlier, check your pride at the door and just go in and like be willing to lose to get better. I'm going to take mine um, since Inquisitor has come back on the scene and uh, do something that, I've seen him do or, or that he's potentially known for. Um, and this is also something that I know Brian has mentioned in the past, but your life is a resource in the game, which is true, but being conservative and patient with your guard and being willing to let your units die or trade is a very, it's, it's like a very important skill that is tough to learn in any given game. But as you are conservative with your guard and as you're willing to let your units die um, instead of always trying to to take the hits, I think you open up more opportunities for yourself across a round. 
because you only have one, maybe two guards if you have unit guards on board. And it's so important to protect what's really valuable and learn what's really valuable and core to your success in the round and your success in the game versus I don't want to trade this because I just paid for it. And sometimes that's just the way it goes. Or you put something like sometimes you're just going to lose out. That might be a better number 15 than always have a frog up is <laughs> be very wary about using your guard early in a round. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I like all of them. I especially like yours, Schmenny, because that's that's the toughest. I, I still have not learned how to do that. Me either. This game stresses me out all the time. Yep. No frogs, no chill. That's my motto. Just be freaking out all the time. <laughs> Frogless. <laughs> If you would have had a frog up, you'd just been all right, right? Get a frog up. Frog up. The first uh, Jankyard T-shirt. We need like a we need like a hand sign for that. I don't know. Just throw up. Frog up. <laughs> ribbit, ribbit. All right. Yeah. That's good. So there we go. We solved it. Everyone now is going to listen to this and become top notch. Yep. Everyone's good now. The competition is going to become even more intense. So. Uh, that stress level is going to get even worse. Get up those frogs. Who's going to do the sign-off this week? Schmandrix, you're back. It's your turn. That's true. I had to do it in front of Nick Conley, the creator of this game. You're going to make me do it again? That's got to count for, like, several. No. <laughs> we can we can change the sign-off to get your frogs up. Yeah, let, let, let's... let's <laughs> Ribbit, ribbit. <laughs> ribbit, ribbit. Frog up. All right. That, frog that's up. the sign-off for the sign-off. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, we've gone a long way from Jank if that's <laughs> play nature. Yeah. That's it. Right. Hey, it's, it's on theme, or at least it will be in a couple months. It will. Until next time. Until next time. Yep. Have a good one. Get good. Play more. Frog up. Frog, Frog up. up. <laughs> <laughs>